And we're going to be starting our rallies. The first one we believe will be probably, we're just starting to call up, will be in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They've done a great job with COVID, as you know, in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, we're going to be coming into Florida, do a big one in Florida, big one in Texas. Uh, they're all going to be big. Hello, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily D.C., By the sounds of it, you would think that America has gotten over the pandemic. With more than 113,000 Americans dead and the virus still raging across the country, President Trump plans to flout social distancing guidelines from his own government as he resumes in-person campaigning with rallies in exactly one week from today. And despite those warnings about a second wave of coronavirus, the Republican National Committee announced that the Republican convention will be taking place as a quote-unquote celebration in Jacksonville, Florida. And in case you were wondering where those states stood, both Oklahoma and Florida have recently seen increases in reported coronavirus cases. Joining me now to discuss more on the president and his campaign's decision and the 2020 race overall, political reporter Dan Merica. Dan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this year's Republican convention, the move from North Carolina to Jacksonville, and what we can expect now that Jacksonville has been chosen and announced for the celebration, as they're calling it. What can we expect that to look like in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, it's going to guarantee that this Republican National Convention is going to be unlike any convention that we have seen in modern history, where... On one day, you will have delegates actively voting to nominate, or in this case, renominate the president of the United States. And then I think it's some 400 miles away down the road, you're going to have the actual celebration of that renomination. Um, it's a little unclear at this point of what exactly is going to be taking place in each location. It seems like the Charlotte portion is going to be pretty quick and pretty small based on what the Republican National Committee's executive board voted and agreed on, which is basically a little over 336 total delegates, which is six delegates from each state and territory who are actually going to be voting on the nomination of Donald Trump. What would have been about 2,500 delegates in a regular year. That's the limit of the what's going to happen in Charlotte, it seems. And then most of, you know, what most people associate with the convention, the keynote speeches, the party atmosphere, all of that stuff is going to be going on in Jacksonville, where Republican leaders there have been far more willing to you know, somewhat bow to the president's pressure of having a traditional convention that he has so desperately wanted and what the North Carolina governor was not willing to do. Hang on. So let me just ask. You say the North Carolina governor was not willing to do. It seems to me what the governor wasn't willing to do was guarantee that it would look exactly like a regular convention and that he wasn't quite sure where they were going to be come August and what kinds of social distancing measures and whatever would be needed. I think he asked the RNC for a plan of what that looked like. And obviously, they did not come to terms with that. But I guess my question is, Florida is one of the states that we've seen an uptick in cases. And is there any plan that we've seen or the RNC has put forward as to how they're going to deal with that, even now that they've selected a place that is more open to uh, hosting a in-person convention event? I have not seen a plan that gets at how they will protect people who are at this convention. There have been many have said, and including the RNC chairwoman, 
McDaniel has said that they will be careful. They will they will follow guidelines that the state set. But you also have at the same time that the state of Florida has been far more willing to or quick to reopen and is run by a Republican governor who is very close with President Trump. And and I think it's fair to say would be somewhat influenced by what the president is asking for ahead of his convention. So I don't think anyone knows exactly what it's going to look like in Jacksonville because we also don't know where the pandemic's going to be at that point. You know, as you mentioned, Florida is one of 12 states that's seen an uptick. If that uptick continues and Florida has to do something like a shutdown or like it happened across the country over the past few months, I think it's hard to predict really what exactly is going to be able to take place in Jacksonville. I know that the president wants something that looks like a traditional convention. They're doing it in a fairly large arena. I'm sure he wants the balloon drop imagery. But I think it remains to be seen whether that actually can take place. And if you talk to a lot of Republicans, they'll admit that, that they don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Tell us what you've learned in just talking to Republicans in this selection process about how they see the political significance of Jacksonville, apart from the desire to host this event and be open enough in their process related to COVID, just pure political significance here. How does Jacksonville play into the president's strategy? I mean, the the president loves Florida. He is now a Florida resident officially. And I think that any Republican operative would tell you there isn't a pathway to victory for President Trump that does not include Florida. So it makes sense that they're going to be doing their convention in a place that is controlled by Republicans, that will allow them to have more leeway, and that is critically important to his reelection. Now, That's not to diminish North Carolina, which not only is going to be critical as a battleground state for the presidential election, but also has a host of competitive down-ballot races, including a very hotly contested Senate race. So I think Democrats are hopeful that they'll be able to turn this into Republicans are turning their back on North Carolina. We wouldn't do that. You've already seen a number of Democrats do that, including the DNC chair, Tom Perez. But I think on the ground in North Carolina, there's a little more hesitance to say that the everyday voters are going to be buying into the idea that because the Republicans move their convention out, it means that they don't care about the state or that voters will be willing to punish them at the ballot box. But it makes sense that the president would do his event, do his convention in Florida because of the political importance of it and the fact that he has a little more influence there that he doesn't have elsewhere. Duval County, home to Jacksonville, was extraordinarily close. I think uh, Trump just edged Hillary Clinton ahead by a percentage point or so. It could be very telling for that overall quest, you say, for Florida's uh, very important electoral votes. North Carolina, too. It's hard to imagine two states that the president doesn't need to really ensure are back in his corner this time around if indeed he's going to have a successful path to re-election. The date for his acceptance speech or celebration is set for August 27th. That happens to be the anniversary of a KKK attack in Jacksonville some 60 years ago. Do you think there was any sign from the RNC that they were aware of this history? Did anyone Google that uh, history, given the moment we're in as a country? You know, I, I don't know one way or the other, to be sure. I think it's more likely that they were unaware of that. Maybe at the RNC level, I'm sure people in Jacksonville were aware of not only the history of that, but the fact that the anniversary was in August around the time, and in this case, going to be on the date that the president is set to accept his renomination. And it's not just this event. As you are well aware, the president is supposed to be going 
to do a his first rally during coronavirus in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Juneteenth, and Tulsa being the site of a arguably one of the nation's worst race riots as well. So it's a trend which I think contributes to why people are raising these questions. I do, as a reporter who's covered Trump and covered just politics in general, I do think we attribute maybe a little bit too much to kind of the happenstance nature of some of this. And I think maybe they just were kind of unaware of the history, especially in Jacksonville, were unaware of the history and that it would fall on this anniversary. Okay, I'll just say they may have been unaware of the history, but anybody doing their due diligence and picking a site like this should learn the history. I take your point that it may not be a strategic decision to place an event there to have this conversation about racial history in these places, but to not uh, understand it, search it, know it, and lean into it in some way as you announce it to me, that's just sort of political malpractice there. And on the Tulsa front, it is impossible for me to imagine uh, that they were just completely unaware of that. I mean, as recently as January, Michael Bloomberg, as a candidate for president, went to Tulsa and did a whole event about Black Wall Street, talked about the massacre in 1921. This is not something that's just been absent from modern-day politics either. Yeah, speaking more to the Jacksonville dynamic of this, I think it speaks more, honestly, to the frantic nature which all of this happened in. The fact that they're pulling a convention basically out of a state, doing the celebration in a different state, you know, mere months before it is supposed to take place. I think it speaks to that, that, that there was a frantic search for a place to go. And, and you're right. The due diligence that most conventions would have done probably didn't happen. On that note, let's take a quick break. We'll have a lot more with Dan Merica in just a moment. Welcome back to The Daily DC with CNN political reporter Dan Merica. The president came out this week actively opposing calls to remove the names of Confederate generals from U.S. military bases. And he said in a tweet that hopefully our great Republican senators won't fall for this. However, we've actually seen many Republicans on the Hill say that this is not something that they would be opposed to. Uh, What is your sense in this moment in time of Donald Trump's isolation, perhaps even from some of his closest allies. Yeah, I mean, I I think that he is trying to play the hits in a way. He got elected in 2016 by playing to the culture war, by kind of playing to aggrievement in a way. And I think that that's what he's trying to do this time. The ironic thing is that a GOP-led panel in the Senate approved the move to remove Confederate names on military assets, even though the president opposed it. So yeah, you're right. He is somewhat being boxed in. And while he may tweet and say that he opposes it, and I will note, uses a racist name for the senator who is sponsoring the bill, Elizabeth Warren, that I won't repeat here. But at the same time, you know, it seems like some on in the Senate aren't listening to that, aren't listening to that nearly as much as they would have maybe earlier in his tenure. And I would imagine that that leads to a feeling of being boxed in and of not having maybe the influence that he once had, especially on an issue like this. You know, I don't think there's a lot of Republican senators who ran for Senate hoping that they would be arguing, especially months out from an election, about the names of Confederate generals on U.S. military bases. It's not something that animates a lot of them. But I do think President Trump clearly thinks it animates part of his base and plays up that culture war dynamic that we've talked about. 
Dan, when I saw the images yesterday, President Trump in Texas and Vice President Biden at his economic roundtable in Philadelphia, just in this moment of, you know, a pandemic is still something we're living through right now. And you see Biden with this incredible social distance, a mask hanging from his face. We saw that split screen over Memorial Day weekend of the two of them looking different in public with mask and no mask. We saw Vice President Pence at campaign headquarters for the Trump-Pence campaign with nobody in masks, completely on top of each other, all these young campaign staffers for a photo. They then took that tweet and photoed down. This is such a study in contrasts of just how these two candidates and campaigns are operating in this moment. And I wonder in your conversations with the Biden campaign, if that is a contrast they like. I think it absolutely is. And I think that in a weird way, wearing a mask for Joe Biden has become a political statement in a way because the president refuses to do it because, as you note, Mike Pence went to their campaign headquarters and there was not a mask in sight. It is something that they are happy to play up because they think any opportunity that they have to separate themselves from the president, separate their candidate from the president, is a good moment for them, especially with a lot of Democratic voters who, more than anything, are eager to vote President Trump out of office. You heard this during the primary that you know, a voter may have had a preferred primary candidate, a preferred Democrat, maybe even a list of three, but that they would have voted for any of the Democrats who ran over President Trump. And I think the more that Biden can separate himself from the president, even on issues like that, even on social distancing, even on wearing a mask, even on those things that seem symbolic. Or not holding a rally where you need your supporters to sign a waiver to attend which is what the Trump campaign is doing with that Tulsa rally. Can you imagine? I I, I certainly couldn't imagine five months ago that we would be talking about signing waivers, health waivers, to go to rallies. All of that kind of contributes to what I think is a conscious strategy by the Biden campaign to, in any way, separate themselves from Trump, from Trump's campaign, and even more broadly, from just the culture of his campaign, this idea that we don't have to listen to science, even though science is saying this. You hear so often Democrats, including Joe Biden, say, you know, if I'm president, I'm going to listen to the scientists. That seems like such a kind of everyday run-of-the-mill statement, but at the same time, it's something that I think a lot of Democrats respond to because they feel like not wearing a mask, still holding rallies, that sort of thing. It flies in the face of science. There's no doubt we see that in a lot of the polling. This campaign is going to be so fascinating because it is playing out on entirely new turf. For those of us that cover campaigns, for voters participating in it, it is all new which makes it all the more fascinating to watch. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And a special thanks to our listeners as well. The Daily DC is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is the executive producer, and Haley Thomas is the senior news producer. Raj Makija is our technical lead. Our episodes are produced by Will Cadigan, Mimi Mutesa, and Priscilla Alibi, and engineered by Francisco Monroy. David Toledo is the team's production assistant. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about this podcast, please do so using the hashtag TheDailyDC. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you next week. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 